Friends, good morning. Welcome to our time of gathered worship. Whether you're joining us online or here in person, whether you are feeling all of the positive vibes of living your best life, or whether your heart is heavy with grief, or maybe a sense of failure or frustration or confusion of why your best laid plans don't seem to be following the logical path you anticipated. Friends, no matter your state of being, feeling, or thinking, you are welcome here. And the God of the universe welcomes us here in this moment with a love beyond our comprehension. Today is the second Sunday in the season of Lent. It's a season of preparation for the celebration of Easter. And it's one that leads us on a journey with Christ to the cross through a spacious wilderness of dependence upon God. In this journey, we are taking up our cross to follow Jesus, dying to selfish desires and throwing off the sin that so easily entangles us. It's meant to be a journey that frees us up to rely upon God's goodness, even as we intentionally set some things aside that maybe we've over-relied upon. Lent is a season when we especially allow ourselves to name the reality that we are not the masters of our own destiny that life is fragile, that our control is simply an illusion of control, and that we are and always have been at the mercy of a good and gracious God whose love is more steady and stabilizing than we've perhaps dared to fully believe or rely upon. This is good news, friends. This morning, as we begin our time of worship together and as we consider our relationship to God, ourselves, and to one another, I invite you to consider the greatness of our God, the God who is the very ground of our being, the breath in our lungs, and the one in whom all things in heaven, on earth, and in our precious and fragile lives holds together. Hear these words from Psalm 36, verses 5 through 9. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. Would you stand and let's sing together?
friends, you may be seated. Each Sunday of Lent, we're extinguishing one of the candles here on our communion table, and we're literally following Jesus. This Christ candle represents Jesus toward his death as we extinguish a candle. When during Holy Week, we will extinguish the Christ candle, but we will relight it on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the joy of resurrection. As we extinguish a candle each Sunday, it's a symbolic act, naming that when we take up our cross and die to ourselves— when we die to sin, to brokenness, to selfish desires, we follow Jesus to the cross, to the grave, and ultimately to resurrection hope. And when we let go of lesser lights and loves in our lives, we depend more fully on Jesus to bring the light of his presence to dark places, not only in ourselves, but also in this world. Skylar's going to extinguish a candle for us, and we're going to pray together with the words on the screen I will be the one, and I invite you to be the all. Let's pray together. Oh God, in this season of Lent, help us to examine our attachments and to follow your invitation to live more simply and deeply with you. Teach us to die to our world's broken ways to succeed, that we may see how the crucified one is Lord. Teach us to die to the appetites and needs that drive us into taking, having, and wanting more than we need. Teach us to die with you, O Christ, that we may rise with you and live in the spaciousness of your life. Teach us to take up our cross and follow you as we place our feet on the road to Easter and walk the way that you have walked before us. Amen.
And this time I want to invite um, Ken Eriks forward. For those of you who perhaps don't know, Ken was the lead pastor here at Fellowship Church for 15 years in the 90s through the early 2000s. He and his wife, Barb, are still actively involved in leadership here at Fellowship in a variety of ways. And perhaps most notably, you might know Ken as the head of our hospitality team, um, one of the familiar and friendly faces that you might see in the parking lot or at the doors. Uh, Ken's going to tell us a little bit about Pastor Nate's sabbatical as part of the team um, that is helping Pastor Nate there. Yeah, a number of months ago, Linda Milanowski announced Nate's sabbatical that had been proposed and approved by our HR team and then our full consistory enthusiastically. So I'm glad on behalf of the sabbatical team to bring you a bit of an update about that and also to an invitation to participate in some gifts to the Skipper family and others in the years that follow for sabbaticals. First of all, a word about our, our, our sabbatical policy. I should have had my reading glass. I can't read the far ones. I'll read this one. <laughs> the concept of sabbaticals finds its root in the biblical principle of Sabbath, a concept both modeled and commanded by God. In Leviticus 25, 1-7, and Exodus, Genesis, that is all described. God instructs that after six years, the land should be given a period of rest from cultivation. And that has been a prompt for our, for our leadership team at Fellowship a number of years ago, probably more than earlier than it was fashionable to have a sabbatical policy put in place, which was done in 1990. So that's since that time, Jim Barr has had the gift of two sabbaticals, and they were, and he could earn three or four, honestly, but he got two from 19, one in 1991 and one in the year 2000. I had the gift of a sabbatical in 1998, and Nate, and then Brian Keepers had a sabbatical in 2013. So those are the sabbaticals that have been celebrated by pastors here so far. The current policy is close to what was put in place a number of years ago. After seven years of active, full-time active ministry, a pastor qualifies for a sabbatical of three full months with full pay and with the, uh, with the option of adding some weeks of vacation onto that. Uh, Nate's sabbatical is going to start. He's preaching here on Easter Sunday. His sabbatical is going to start April 1. So he will be on sabbatical right after Easter. Um, the, the sabbatical policy uh, is... Uh, Done because we, want, we really do want our pastors to feel loved, supported, encouraged, number one. We want, it, we want our pastors to have times for rest, renewal, for spiritual refreshment, for learning, and for new experiences. And we certainly want them to have time with family and friends along the way so that they have both that kind of emotional and relational renew, refreshment as well. Those are all the reasons we, that we do those and more. Nate's sabbatical, which will start soon, is going to involve travel quite a bit for the first two months. And we are very pleased that Nate, that the entire family, the entire Skipper family is going to go with Nate on his travels. And they will be, those travels will take him to, to the Virgin Islands, to Mexico, to Netherlands, to France, to Spain. He'll be visiting mission partners with whom fellowship is close and has been close for years as part of that. And there will be family time all along the way as well. So we're pleased that the entire Skipper family will be able to part, be a part of that sabbatical of that journey. Then in June, they'll be back in Holland with some additional time as a family refreshment. And they'll, he'll, he'll be back with us as a pastor in July. In the meantime, the staff has already made arrangements for all, all the duties to be covered here with guest preachers, and Tracy Jansma is going to step up and do some additional congregational care along with Pat Borpegel. You'll be well cared for when Nate's not around uh, along the way as well. Um, 
What we're going to, you are going to get a letter in the next week or so that is going to invite you to do two things, to pray, to pray for Nate and his family. It'll give you some additional details about this sabbatical. And it's going to also invite you to contribute to a sabbatical fund, a newly created sabbatical fund from which the skippers will be able to draw uh, for some of their expenses as a family during this sabbatical. And then because you are a generous congregation, we may have an abundance of gifts to that fund and they will stay in that fund for future sabbaticals after that. You'll get, have a letter coming your way very soon to invite you to do that. In the meantime, uh, just pray for Nate and Becca and the family as they prepare for this sabbatical. Thanks for your time. As we continue in worship, it is our prayer not only for Pastor Nate on his sabbatical, but also for us in this season of Lent to slow down and to hear God's voice speaking to us. So let's sing together. Slow me down, oh Lord, slow me down. Help my heart to hear your sound. Speak into my life, Lord, speak now. Slow me down, oh Lord, slow me down. Clear my mind, oh Lord, clear my mind. Bring me peace that I cannot. would you stand? It is because of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection that we have peace with God and with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you as you are comfortable to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor.
Well, good morning, church and friends and guests. The Lord be with you. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. As always, you are invited to connect in with us with our connection cards there and also to join in with us in ministry and in mission by the giving of your time, talents, and treasures uh, as God leads and as you are able. We have a photo update coming from our team. We told you last week they're in Nicaragua. They're there right now. We have a couple photos to show you of the team that's there. They are there to love on our mission partners and to learn from them. They are uh, suffering in Jesus' name in the sunshine out there and uh, doing good good things. Uh, They're expected to return this Tuesday night late if all goes well on their flights. They did all end up at one same site because of some flight challenges, so they're all together in those photos. Please keep them in your prayers. Looking ahead to next week, next week is a table-to-table Sunday. Uh, which means that we will gather in worship at the Lord's table for communion and then move to the lunch table after the second service for some time together in fellowship. And it's also the youth fundraiser next week, Sunday. So please do come and come back for lunch. Come hungry and, and eager to support our youth in their upcoming endeavors. That's March 3. The Sunday after that is March 10, and that's the weekend of our church, uh, of our all-church retreat. If you haven't signed up yet and want to, you can still slide in at the last minute to get on the retreat. But what I want you to notice right now is that that particular Sunday, March 10, we will have one worship service, one united service. It'll actually be in three parts. Some of us will be way up north. Some of us will be online, and some of us will be in the sanctuary here together, but all of those services together are at 9.30. What time? 9.30. It's different than normal, okay? So take note, 9.30 on March 10. Finally, our kids are dismissed at this time to scoot off to some discipleship times with Miss Betsy right there, ages three through third grade, and we'll continue in song uh, with a song that is a prayer for illumination. So let's do so together. Stew. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters, as friends um, before you, uh, to gather together to sing to you and to pray to you and to confess to you and to extend peace to one another in your name and to study the scriptures together. As we turn toward the scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, and that you would open our hearts that we might love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. So good to see your faces. Uh, my name's Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. If I have not yet met you, and we are now in a series that we are, uh, it's kind of a mended series, Curios overall, but this particular one, the crucified one is Lord. Uh, in this series, we're exploring Jesus as Lord or as Curios uh, in the Greek. And specifically in the weeks leading up to Easter, the cruciform shape or the cross-shaped nature of Jesus' Lordship and also Jesus' mission. What does it mean that Jesus' lordship and mission is shaped like the cross and by the cross? Well, this morning's text is a rather odd place to explore this question from. It's one of several instances where the disciples struggle to understand what greatness means. Now, you and I may not be able to describe in proper theological or philosophical terms what greatness is, but we know it when we see it, right? Like if I asked you to describe a time when you witnessed greatness or you were a part of greatness, where would your mind wander to? For me, it was watching the Lakers play the Kings in 2002 with my dad um, all those years ago and down by two points with mere seconds on the clock, Robert Ory, best six man ever, uh, gets the ball, sinks the three, Lakers win the Western Conference Finals. The crowd went nuts and so did my dad and I. That was greatness. Or fast forward quite a few years to 2017, I'm in the basement of friends um, in New England. The Patriots are playing the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl. Again, I was in New England. New Englanders take their Patriots very seriously. In fact, one of the friends has a binder, still has it, uh, describing all the details of Deflategate so that he could properly defend Tom Brady in arguments. Yeah, so, so by the time the Patriots were down, something like 25 points, the room had sort of lost its sizzle. Half the party dispersed to go put kids to bed. The rest of us sat around and shared memes on our phones, only half watching the game. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, we watched Tom Brady carry the Patriots to one of the most impressive Super Bowl victories of all time. That was greatness. We may not be able to describe greatness in its proper theological or philosophical terms, but we know it when we see it on the court or on the field, or on a stage, or on a class project, or in a killer performance in a high school musical, or in a crisis at work or school, or in the operating room. We know greatness when we see it and when we experience it. And yet, in today's text, the cross seems to clash with the pursuit of greatness. It almost seems to tell us that greatness is inherently prideful, a mere distraction for truly humble Christian persons. Today's text invites us to consider not only the lordship of Jesus, but also his mission yet again, but in a rather peculiar narrative that seems to call into question what it means to be great, to pursue greatness, or to do great things. So if you hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, picking up in verse 30, they, the disciples and Jesus, went on from there and passed through Galilee. 
And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 over to himself and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning's text finds the disciples of Jesus entertaining a rather curious question. What were you discussing along the way? Jesus asked them. The disciples are almost too ashamed to say anything, so they say nothing. But the narrator tells us it's because they were arguing with each other about who was the greatest. Now, if this seems a bit unseemly, it's because it is. It's a bit like asking someone how much money they make for a living or how much they paid for their house as you walk around on the tour. It's a bit cringy. What could possibly prompt a vigorous argument about greatness amongst the disciples? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first, their culture uh, raises the question of greatness all the time. Greco-Roman culture was obsessed with honor and greatness. Uh, it wasn't just a Greco-Roman virtue, a very serious Greco-Roman virtue. It was also a way of life. Uh, when I lived in New England, there was a Dunkin' Donuts on every single corner. In fact, when I would ask people for directions, they would give me directions based on where the Dunkin' Donuts used to be. If I knew that, I wouldn't be asking directions, but you know. <laughs> uh, so Dunkin' Donuts has this tagline, America runs on Dunkin'. Uh, this is kind of how the Roman culture was. It ran on honor. Uh, honor both then and now was a, was a public affirmation of one's uh, value or greatness by his or her peers. To be honored was to be publicly affirmed by your peers, and shame was simply to lose or to lack honor. Now, honor wasn't just simply um, how many likes you got on social media. It was currency. It was, it was actual currency for you. Honor was your VIP pass uh, into all the connections that were vital for life or for family or for future prosperity. People with a lot of honor could access more of the world than those without it. To have honor was to, be, or to, or was to have the requisite status indicators that indicated that you were of the right pedigree. Maybe you came from a good family with land and wealth and a summer cottage on the lake, or, or maybe you were born into a social rank. Um, cue your Jane Austen or Bridgerton. You were born into a social rank with a title. Uh, you were a part of the ruling class in the Roman Empire. Or you were well-educated, and because of that, you could speak good. It's a joke. Speak well. Uh, <laughs> uh, or you amassed some other public accomplishments that allowed you to jump social rank. Uh, Jumping social rank, extremely rare. Uh, if you were born into a lower inferior rank, um, even if you were, for instance, you were born a slave or you were a slave at one point in your life, you weren't a slave anymore, you were still of inferior rank. You couldn't just jump social rank. Um, but on the rare occasion, you could excel over your peers in some way through a public accomplishment that brought you notoriety or wealth. If you were a woman, you also gained or lost honor based on uh, chastity and modesty. If you were a man, you could also gain honor by showing courage in battle 
or lose honor by showing cowardice and timidity in battle. In an honor-shame culture, there was no such thing as self-esteem. Your Facebook or your social media feed uh, was less about you saying things about yourself and what other people said about you. It was more like a Google review or a Yelp review because honor was bestowed upon you by others. And the public affirmation of others was the most important thing about you. It was a social currency that gave you access to the world. Who's the greatest? The person who amasses the most honor and status for himself or herself, and sometimes, sometimes even tramples over their peers to do so. But it's not just the culture that prompts the, uh, the question, it's also their history. Uh, by the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire had been uh, the occupying force in Judea for almost 40 years. Uh, Rome was the fourth empire to dominate Judea and Jerusalem. It all started with the Babylonians, and who then eventually fell to the Persians, who then eventually fell to the Greeks. Uh, now the Greeks, after uh, the super early death of Alexander the Great, kind of splintered into um, kind of micro-empires, and the Seleucids, one of those micro-empires, were the ones who gained control over Judea. But here's where it gets really interesting, because for a glorious period of about 100 years, God's people managed to fight off the Seleucids, um, build their own empire, or their own independent state, uh, rally an army that could expand their borders back to you, like, I mean, like hundreds of years ago, um, um, uh, uh, standards. And they did all of this with intermittent help from a young, up-and-coming empire, the Romans, yeah, the Romans actually were happy to help God's people defeat the Seleucids and weaken the Greeks overall um, until they actually toppled the Greeks themselves. And as a result, with the Seleucids gone, the Romans decided that they could not have a haughty, um, glorious, militarized, independent Judean state. And so they themselves moved against Judea in 63 BC, something like 63 BC. And by the time of Jesus' birth, God's people had gone from the glory and the pride of an independent state to the shame and the humiliation of being in occupied, conquered territory. Who's the greatest? The one who dominates others, the one who dominates on the geopolitical landscape, or in particular, the one who dominates those eventually who dominated him or her. But it's not just the culture and the history that prompts this question of who's the greatest, it's also life experiences. Indeed, just a few hours ago, Jesus went up a high mountain and he took with him Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John got to see quite literally the transcendent glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. And, you know, Moses and Elijah also showing up to chat with him in real time. It is a serious mountaintop experience, maybe even the first real mountaintop experience. And then when it's all over, as they're descending, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody what they saw. So they descend the mountain, probably, you might guess, feeling pretty good about themselves and maybe even feeling a little bit superior to the peasants down below. Uh, now, where are the other disciples while this is happening? They are down at the base of the mountain trying but failing to perform an exorcism. And they're not just failing in front of the boy and his father, but a crowd gathers and eventually everyone else is watching them fail miserably to heal this boy. Now, not only is this something that they've watched Jesus do countless times before at this point, but it's also something that they should be able to do, Jesus says to them as he comes down the mountain. Jesus sort of upbraids them in front of everyone before he heals the boy himself. Who's the greatest? Perhaps the ones who got picked to go with Jesus. 
and certainly not the ones who didn't get picked or who failed miserably in front of everyone. And so an argument ensues, and it's, apparent, it's apparently so intense that they can't even speak when Jesus asks them about it. What were you discussing along the way, Jesus asks, but the disciples can't answer him. What kept them silent, you might ask? We'll never know for sure what was stirring in their hearts, but they're human beings, just like you and I. So if a quick plunge into the depths of our own souls is any indication, any number of things could have been stirring for them. Any number of things could have been keeping them silent. Maybe feelings of superiority for the ones who got picked when other people didn't. Maybe envy for the ones who didn't get picked and maybe even think that they're not the favorites. Maybe insecurity for the ones who failed miserably in front of everybody. Maybe shame for the ones who tried their very best, and it still wasn't enough. Maybe a bit of apathy is setting in for the ones who've decided to never try to do a hard thing or a big thing or a great thing ever again. Maybe a ferocious hunger or desire for vengeance for the ones who, who really have been bullied and oppressed and occupied for decades, centuries even. Maybe even zealous ambition for the ones who really want to make a name for themselves so that they're no longer at the bottom of society. Whatever it was that kept them silent, maybe even some of the things that keep us silent sometimes, without them even saying a word, Jesus diagnoses the problem and he calls them over to himself and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus begins to invite them out of this broken conception of greatness that they have imbibed from their culture and from their lives and from their experiences, and he redirects them toward a cross-shaped greatness. Cross-shaped greatness both confronts and comforts them. It affirms their humanity, but also pushes them to the very edge of their humanity as well. And it does so in a couple of different ways. At first, cross-shaped greatness corresponds to God's design for the human person. I think this is why Jesus doesn't chastise them. Notice that in the text. He doesn't chastise them for wanting to do great things or being great. Why? Because human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and given a royal vocation that testifies to the capacity that the human person has for greatness. The Christian tradition has long believed that you and I come hardwired with the capacity for greatness and along with it for great acts of courage and endurance and patience and risk and adventure. And it's the image of God that animates all of this into being for us. Cross-shaped greatness affirms that the human beings are made with the capacity for greatness, but specifically as partners with God in his greatness in creation um, and in, in creation and in the cosmos. Which is why, second, secondly, cross-shaped greatness is a gift from God for the glory of God. God has prepared good works in advance for each of us to do. It says in Ephesians, even before sin and brokenness entered into the, into the picture, participation in those good works was always, always beyond our limited, finite humanity. And so like Abraham and Sarah, we recognize that greatness has always been the stuff of grace, not of earning, but of grace and of gift and of invitation to partner with God. So we're made with the capacity for greatness, and yet greatness is a gift from God for the glory of God. 
And I love the way that Thomas Aquinas says this, for the profit or for the sake of others. Cross-shaped greatness is a servant of all, Jesus says. Cross-shaped greatness makes good use then of the gift it has received. It does spend the hours in the gym so that it can sink the clutch shot. It perfects skills so that it can perform precise surgeries that save lives. It studies long and hard so that it can prepare brilliant young minds for life and calling. It does the clinical hours and it sits through weekends of professional development so that it can help patients find freedom, but not for its own glory and not even for its own sake, but specifically for the sake of others. Because while greatness is gifted to us from God, it is sent or addressed to others for their sake. Cross-shaped greatness is a, is a uh, cross-shaped greatness is a servant of all, Jesus says. Now, cross-shaped greatness sounds great in theory, to be the servant of all, to be last of all, but it's actually a lot harder in practice, especially when we live in a world informed by sinful, short-sighted conceptions of greatness. Here's what I mean. Years ago, I walked into a meeting room and uh, I was a smidge late because, you know, the line at Starbucks was a, longer, a little bit longer that day. And, uh, <laughs> and so by the time I got there, um, the only chair left was the chair at the head of the table. As I reluctantly sat there, um, I hate sitting all the way over away from friends of mine, but I sat there. Uh, and eventually, though, I realized that I couldn't cross my legs under the table like I like to do when I sit. And so I'm fidgeting around under the, the, the chair for the lever to lower the chair. And, uh, and eventually, a friend of mine, a good colleague, still a great colleague of mine, reaches over and he goes, that's the director's chair don't lower it. He likes it higher than everybody else's. If you change it, he's going to think we did it on purpose. Yeah. All of the Enneagram 8 energy in me is like, I got to lower this chair. <laughs> like, I need to lower this chair. <laughs> but I love my friends and my colleagues. I didn't want them to get in trouble. So I left the chair alone. And for 75 awkward minutes, I sat perched atop this guy's like makeshift throne. Uh, now, ridiculous office antics aside, we all know people, and sometimes we are those people who need our chair, like a little bit higher than everybody else's. Um, and I think that's the reason why we confuse greatness with arrogance and pride. Uh, we confuse it with selfish ambition. We confuse it with um, the ruthless domination of other people and kind of lording over others. Uh, but that would be, um, as Aquinas says, to confuse the things that need to die, the sin and the vice that needs to die in us, with the things that need to rise within us. Next slide, please. Um, it would be to conflate the pride and the insecurity and um, the fear and the anger and the hatred and the selfish ambition and envy and shame and apathy and all the things that get in the way of greatness with actual greatness, all the things that are propping up that chair with actual greatness. But I think Mark places Jesus' second pronouncement of his pending death um, just before this little feud with the, between the disciples precisely because it is the cross of Jesus Christ that ultimately defines what true greatness is. Jesus goes to the cross precisely to bring men and women, boys and girls, back to God. Christ in his cross then trivializes the cultural pursuit of honor and accolades. It trivializes the geopolitical pursuit of dominance. It trivializes even the sibling rivalry that emerges between human beings. They're reduced to penultimate or temporal significance, important but not most important, by the one who dies on the cross for our sake, 
the one who rises in glory, the one who ascends with all honor, as the one with all of the honor and the glory in the cosmos. And he is the one who bestows an honor and a dignity upon us that we don't have to earn or prove. And we couldn't earn if we even tried. An honor and a dignity that far surpasses anything that even the very best of humans could say about us. And because he has clothed us with his dignity and honor through the blood of his cross, because he has restored the honor that we lost through sin and brokenness in our lives, in doing so, he has freed us to die so that we can live. The cross-shaped greatness that Jesus invites us into isn't the stuff of fans shouting and cheering in stadiums and theaters. And it's not the stuff of raising our chairs a little higher than everybody else's. It's actually the stuff of dying daily to sin and brokenness for the sake of fellowship with God and God's people and Christ's mission in the world. It's death to our own visions of greatness in the face of, of what God says is truly great. It's death to our own comfort as we cultivate and serve others with the gifts that God has given to us. It's death to our own need for vengeance over the bully at school or at work. It's death to our superiority for having been picked first or well-born. It's death to our insecurity for having been deemed a failure. It's death to our ambition that seeks its own glory rather than God's. It's death to our apathy and fear in the face of a rapidly declining church. And in all of these, it is death to the shallow greatness that our world seems to be so obsessed with still so that we can live for Christ's mission in the world and in our lives and even within our own souls. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are greatness, you are excellence, you are magnificence, and that in all of that, you somehow stooped to form us as lowly dirt creatures, um, lowly dirt creatures created from the dust of the earth, and yet you pressed upon us your greatness, your seal of greatness and goodness, and that even when that was marred and distorted by sin and brokenness of our own choosing, you went to great lengths, great lengths, to um, relinquish everything for our sake so that we could be restored, uh, restored to full humanity, restored to relationship with you, restored to our vocation as caretakers of this world and of others. We confess that sometimes we shrink back from that mission. We confess that sometimes we uh, lash out at other people along the way toward that mission. We confess that sometimes we get into petty squabbles about who is great. Lord, help us to see you and your cross Help us to see the blood that poured from your skin as the greatness that we aspire to and help us to see all other things through that lens, including ourselves and others. In all these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Friends, in our response this morning, as we consider this cross-shaped greatness and our value in being loved by God, Let's sing together and stand of this reckless love of God that comes after us even when we have not earned it or deserved it.
Friends, let's join our hearts together in a prayer of God's people. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm reminded right now of the beautiful picture in the book of Revelation where it says that there was silence in heaven for a full half an hour as you, O God, gave full attention to the prayers of your people, rising up before your throne like incense before an altar. And to that end, we offer to you our prayers now. First, we say thank you, O God. Thank you for your loving attention that continually abounds towards us, for your steadfast love, for your unending patience, for grace that goes before us, and for mercy that is new every morning. Your disposition towards us, O God, is all the more remarkable, especially when we know that we don't deserve it. And yet, as the psalmist says, you redeem our lives from the pit, you deliver our souls from death, our eyes from tears, and our feet from stumbling. But now, O God, I'm mindful also of the many ways of the people in our midst who are eager to experience your mercy firsthand. Some who are facing the bad news of cancer right now. Some who are struggling to recover from surgery. Some who are walking with family through the valley of the shadow of death. Some who are nursing wounds from a hurt that happened long ago. Others who feel deeply alone right now and still others who feel the grief of good things now gone. We take a moment in your presence, O God, to name a person who is heavy on our minds. Lord, have mercy, and Christ have mercy on us. Just as Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive And so, just as we abundantly receive mercy from you, O God, please enable us and prompt us to share it with others. As we are blessed, make us to be a blessing to others, perhaps by writing a card, or by visiting the sick, or by patiently enduring the wrongs that are done to us, or even by daring to extend grace to a place where it's least expected. Again, as Jesus said, We are to do unto others as we wish it to be done unto us. So help us to do just that, O God. A real humble dare. Please give us courage to do it. Pray all of these things in the strong and loving name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing together.
one final blessing for us this morning, friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.